Now, I know that everybody's dying to know what the spiritual significance of my Tim Hortons coffee is. I promise you, there's no spiritual significance, just my Tim Hortons coffee. This is our, our last week in this series that we have been called, calling Anchored, um, where we have spent some time kind of clearing away the, the clutter that sometimes piles up on top of our faith and, and kind of reducing things down to their most basic and bare bones version of the conversation, just kind of stripping the whole idea of, of faith down to its most constituent parts, to the, to the fundamental truths, the fundamental convictions that we cling to in order to anchor ourselves in faith regardless of what's going on in our life, regardless of what's you know, swirling around us, whether in our, our circumstances or swirling uh, internally in the battles that we're fighting inside or, or in our relationships, dynamics that are going kind of wonky in the way that we're relating to people or whatever it is that's, that's going on around you, what we've been settling in on in this entire series are the things that we can know for sure. The things that keep us anchored and secure and safe in faith regardless of what's swirling on around us. And so we have talked in this series about anchoring ourselves in God the Father Almighty, who is the creator of heaven and earth, that our, our lives are anchored in the God who is behind everything that is, the God who sits and reigns above everything that there is, the God who is inviting us through creation to, to look for him and to reach and make contact with him and to find him and to know him and to trust him with everything that's going on in our lives. We've talked about anchoring ourselves in the reality of God the Son, who became Jesus of Nazareth, God living among us as a flesh and blood human being, the truth about who God is and the truth about who we are, the one who died and was raised from the dead to literally alter the trajectory of human history into the direction of love. We talked about anchoring ourselves in the Holy Spirit, in the God who hovers over his creation, the God who is present in us and among us, tending to us and nurturing us to us and protecting us and empowering us to become the love of Jesus in our lives and, and in our communities and to allow the love of Jesus to flow through our lives. And, and you know what, at some level, uh, I could have been perfectly happy to just stop the series right there. We've talked about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I mean, We've kind of run out of persons of God. So what else, what else is there to anchor you know, your life in? We anchor our lives in the reality of the God who is there lovingly, the God who is there savingly, healingly, the God who is there empoweringly uh, surrounding us in our lives. But uh, we had an extra week to fill. So we, <laughs> we needed to come up with something else. No, no, no. So we, we wanted to add to the tail end of the series to spend a morning thinking about what it means to anchor ourselves uh, in Scripture. I mean, at some level, just, just as there's so much more that we could have said about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there's so much more that we could have said in each of the weeks. Um, there are so many more things that we could have talked about. We could have talked about anchoring ourselves in the discipline of prayer. We could have talked about anchoring ourselves in the community of faith. We could have talked about anchoring ourselves in, in the gathering to worship. We could have talked about anchoring ourselves in the perspective and focus that's created by living a life of mission. But, but to, 
to draw the whole series together, we wanted to, we wanted to think about what it means to anchor ourselves in the scriptures, in the, in the writings that we find in the Bible. I think it's interesting that um, kind of like people's God concept, like if you were to ask you know, just the people that you're in the room with right now, uh, how they would describe God to you or what their instinctive um, response of who God is, you, you would probably get almost as many descriptions of God from the, from the people around you as there are people around you. We all have our own kind of unique perspective on who God is. And I think the same thing is true about Scripture, that we all kind of have our, our own unique perspective on what uh, the Bible is. I think there are some who kind of instinctively treat the Bible as though it's a, it's a rule book. It's kind of the, the core essence of what the Bible is. The Bible is the place where I go to find out how to live, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. It's kind of the attitude is sort of, oh, look, here's a commandment, and it's in the Bible, so we have to obey God. And certainly there are commandments in the Bible, and certainly God wants our obedience. But at the end of the day, I don't think the Bible is fundamentally a rule book. Some of us, I think, instinctively treat the Bible kind of like a, a theology book, a book of doctrine, a, a kind of this comprehensive and exhaustive gathering together of everything that is true about God and life and the universe and everything. Um, and of course, the Bible is profoundly true and it is filled with profound truths, but the Bible is not a theology textbook. That's not its primary reason for being. Um, people do theology. God doesn't do theology. I think there's some people who instinctively treat the Bible like it's a history textbook or a science textbook, that the Bible um, is read as to communicate what is absolutely true historically or scientifically about the world. And yes, the Bible teaches us about history, and yes, the Bible has its own perspectives on science and is especially insightful when it comes to the science of humanity, anthropology, what makes human beings tick. But I don't think fundamentally the Bible is a science or history textbook. For me, the clearest and most concise, most compelling way that I've ever heard the Bible described is to when somebody once said to me that the Bible at its core strip it all back and what the Bible is, is a story. Not anybody's read the Bible. Uh, you will immediately say, wait a minute, Bible don't look like no story to me. It's not written up like a story. It's not written like a novel. In fact, the, the Bible is full of stories, lots of stories, dozens, hundreds of stories, hundreds of characters, almost impossible to keep them all straight and to figure out when they lived and how they relate to each other. It can be very confusing. The Bible's full of stories, but it doesn't feel like it's a story. In fact, the Bible's full of all sorts of other stuff besides stories. There are lists of commandments and lists of names and lists of nations and there's long speeches and sermons and there's lots of poetry and there's letters that get written to individuals and to communities and there's even sections that feel like sci-fi or fantasy with dragons and beasts with seven heads and and ten horns the bible doesn't feel like it's written up like a story but when you when you pull it all together because what what this is i should really say this what this is this is not a book. This is not a single uh, literary work. Um, this is 
a library of 66 different works that were written by dozens of different authors in several different languages on three different continents over almost a millennia of time. Um, And it has diverse perspectives and diverse genres and um, it feels like a bunch of things brought together, but when all of those things are, because that's what it is, but when all of those things are brought together and you take a step back and you see the whole thing compiled, what the whole thing is, is a story. Not a story like a novel, but a story uh, like what a lawyer carries around in her briefcase. When a lawyer goes to court, she doesn't have a a, a, a narrative written out on a, on a manuscript in her uh, briefcase. What she has is a gun that's in a Ziploc bag and some photographs and some wiretaps and a couple affidavits and some hair samples and DNA test results. And she has a whole eclectic assortment of items in her briefcase. But when you, when you bring the whole thing together, they tell the story of the case that she's going to make before the judge and the jury. And that's the sense in which the Bible is a story. The person who said to me, the Bible is a story, is a theologian by the name of N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright says the Bible is a story that is told in five acts. It's a five-act play. The first act in the story of the Bible is an act that could be called creation. It's the shortest act in the entire Bible. It's only two chapters long. It's made up of the first two chapters of the Bible. Genesis is the first book, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That's act 1 in the Bible. And it's kind of the intro, the prologue, the backdrop for everything else that's going to happen in all the rest of the pages of Scripture. It's setting the scene for everything else. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, I've read this verse, I think, in every single sermon in this series. I thought I should start with it again. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the story, this is what we talked about three weeks ago, the story of a God whose overflowing love overflowed into the creation of a cosmos. Who created a universe to reflect the beauty of God's goodness And love, a creation, a universe that God declared was very good. And as a part of his creation, God created humanity to be creatures that bear his image. Which simply means that live in a relationship with God and reflect God's goodness and love into the world. And the job description of humanity is given to us in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 where it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The the word work it in Hebrew simply means to serve creation, to tend it, to nurture it, um, to care for it like a gardener to work lovingly towards the flourishing of life, to nurture it and cultivate it and to to enculture it, to to create something beautiful of it. The, The second word, to take care of it, in Hebrew is simply the word to protect it, to guard it against the encroaching of everything that would undermine God's beautiful vision for what the world is supposed to be in the exactly the same way that I spend well, let's be fair, that Krista spends 
uh, her weekends fighting clover and dandelion on what is supposed to be our front yard, kind of beating back the forces of evil to unleash the beauty of the lawn that is supposed to be very good and living there. Um, at least the clover and the dandelion are green. That's all I care about. From the road, you can hardly tell the difference. But the, the way that we're, we're to, to beat back that which is that encroaching evil in creation, that's what humanity was supposed to do. To push back the sin, to guard creation against sin and evil and everything that undermines God's vision. That's act one, creation. But in act two, we discover that humanity failed to live up to their calling. Um, in, in Act two lasts, by the way, nine chapters. Uh, chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So we're uh, 11 chapters into the Bible, and we've already been through Act 1 and Act 2. You could call Act 2 in the story of Scripture the fall. It's when everything goes wrong. It's where the conflict and the tension and the drama of the Scriptures is introduced. Looking back on Act 2, the Apostle Paul describes it this way in Romans 5 verse 12. He says, just as through one human being sin came into the world and death came through sin, so death has come to everyone since everyone has sinned. That's the underlying story of Scripture, that humanity hasn't been what God has created us to be. We haven't been God's image bearers. Very well. We haven't loved God and loved ourselves as the beloved child of God or loved each other very well. We haven't loved the world very well. In fact, what we discover in Act 2 is that what humanity does instead is that we ignore God, prioritize ourselves, betray each other, and then exploit creation for our own selfish purposes. And as a result of cutting across the grain of God's purposes in the world, instead of working towards the flourishing of life, when we ignore God and prioritize ourselves and betray each other and exploit creation, what we do is introduce death into the world and darkness and chaos and emptiness into God's creation. We introduce brokenness into the system. And the act two is about the spread of brokenness, the infection of sin creeping through God's creation. But in Genesis 12, we arrive at act three. You could call it God's intervention. In act three, God steps into his creation in the form of uh, adopting a nation out of all the human nations. God chooses one nation to be his people, the Jewish nation. Out of their father Abram. And God chooses the Jewish nation in order to role model what it means to be an image bearer. To live in the image of God. To love God and to love yourself as the beloved of God. To love each other and together as a community to love the rest of the world. That's what Israel was supposed to do. In, in Genesis chapter 12, this is the beginning of Act 3. It says this, the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, into the nation of Israel. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. By the way, um, that single sentence in the Bible is responsible for more 
disastrous Middle East foreign policy in the Western world than anything else, in my opinion, but that's a different sermon altogether. And then it says, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was God's vision, that he would choose Israel and bless the nation of Israel to help them become everything God hoped humanity would become. And then through the nation of Israel, all of the rest of the world would be blessed. So God, so the story goes, rescues them from slavery in Egypt. Um, sets them free to become a nation. God gives them his law, which is sort of the, the constitutional foundation of a life of faith in you know, the ancient world 3,000 years ago. This was what, these are the commandments that describe what a life of love for God, for yourself, for each other, and the world looks like in ancient, lived out in ancient culture. God invites them to worship and gives them his presence in the tabernacle and in the temple. God gives them a new land, the promised land. It's like a new Garden of Eden where the new humanity is to start a new chapter of life on the planet to show all the rest of the world what life lived in the image of God is supposed to look like. He gives them kings that were supposed to rule over them in a godly way. He gives them prophets that are supposed to call them back onto God's path. And um, this Act 3 story of God's relationship with Israel, the story of Act 3 is that the whole thing goes horribly awry. In fact, Act 3 runs from Genesis chapter 12, the 12th chapter of the Bible, all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, the first part of um, of the Bible. And the whole thing ends in unmitigated disaster. Israel isn't who um, God created them to be. They don't live up to the high calling. They don't love God, but they ignore him. They don't love themselves as, as a beloved child of God. Instead, they prioritize themselves above everybody else. They don't love each other and... Um, Instead, they betray each other and they take advantage of each other and they exploit creation and reject everybody who's not Jewish. And the whole thing just comes absolutely unraveled because Israel is as infected by sin as everybody else. And so the curtain comes up on Act 4, which you could call Jesus. Act 4 is described in the four Gospels of the Bible, Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies of Jesus. You could also call Act 4, if you want a job done right, you've got to do it yourself, because Act 4 is the climax of the story. It is about God himself coming to live among humanity in the flesh and blood life of Jesus of Nazareth, to, to show the world through his life what being an image bearer of God looks like, what it looks like to love God and to love yourself and to love other people and to love the world, and then through his death and resurrection, Jesus defeats the power of sin and evil in the world. He begins to push back the darkness. He begins the slow journey of turning the ocean liner of human history 180 degrees around to begin to travel in the direction that God had always charted for humanity, which was always only ever the way of love. And then Act 5, the final act, the, the act, the conclusionary act. It, it's the last 25 books of the Bible, the whole rest of the New Testament besides the biographies of Jesus. And you could, you could call it the Holy Spirit or the church or you could simply call it, now you do it. Act 5 begins in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus says to his disciples, but you will receive 
power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. In Act 5, Jesus goes back to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit onto this gathered community of Jesus' followers who are filled by the presence of God and empowered to begin to become image bearers in their own lives. Empowered to love God. Empowered to love themselves as beloved children of God. Empowered to love each other and empowered as a community to love all of the rest of the world. Um, it says that, that the church will become Jesus' witnesses. The church will testify through who they're becoming, the way that they are becoming the love of Jesus in their lives and in their community. They will testify to the truth of God to the rest of the world. They will testify about the truth of Jesus to the world by the way they participate in spreading the love of God in reflecting the love and, and, and goodness of God into the world. As much as they become a part of the spread of the love of God throughout the world. Until the very last chapters of the Bible when we see the final scene of Act 5. When Jesus returns from heaven to earth and finally roots out of creation all that is sinful and evil. Everything that's undermining God's purposes for creation. And he, he says there will be no more tears or death or mourning or crying or pain. And everything will be flooded with the love and the goodness and the presence of God. And God will live among his people and people will live in the presence of God. And everything will be the way God has always intended it to be. That is the story of God's relationship with his creation. His loving, healing, empowering relationship with creation. And that's the story that you and I are invited to live. It becomes an anchor point for us because our stories by faith become connected to God's story. Because the truth is, every one of us is living a story. right? Some of us are living the story of the American dream. Uh, probably the Canadian edition. But it's a story about comfort and ease and luxury and um, about imagining the freedom of what life would be like if you had more money than you knew what to do with, which almost all of us have. Some of us are living a story of relationship. You could call it love actually. <laughs> it's a story about investing the meaning and significance of life in the various relationships that we have, whether romantic or plutonic or, you know, with our friendships or with our, par our parental relationships or whatever. But trying to invest meaning and significance through the love relationships that we have. Some of us are living a, a story that's an adventure story. Pursuing some kind of lofty ideal, some high calling, whether that's a, a calling for justice or a calling for competitiveness or achievement or accomplishment. Whether in your life or living it vicariously through the lives of your kids. That's why we have those people, right? To... To live the lives that make us proud. Some of us are living survival stories. You could call them a series of unfortunate incidents. And in no way do I mean to make light of it. You've been abused and beaten down by life. And now you're just trying to figure out how to get on your feet, how to stand your ground. You're trying to figure out how to make it to the end of the month. You're trying to figure out how to get over your hurts. You're trying to figure out how to deal with your addiction. 
And there are others besides, I'm sure of it, but we're all living a story. And the invitation of Scripture and the reason we come to Scripture and open ourselves to what the Spirit wants to teach us through Scripture is because the Holy Spirit wants to invite us to connect our story into God's story, to live a life that's more than just a series of random events, to live a life that's something greater than what we have to find and invest meaning in, something beyond searching for purpose or searching for love, something greater than just trying to live for pleasure or in resignation, deciding that we're going to eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and there's nothing else. it's, It's the invitation to live a life that is fundamentally connected to God's story, that is a subplot in the story of what God is doing in his creation. To live a life that is a story that has a beginning, that, that begins in the initiating love of God who is reaching out and inviting us to find him, that, that has a middle that is filled with conflict and tension and drama uh, as we try to to come to Jesus and become like Jesus and overcome everything that's preventing us from being the love of Jesus in our lives. It's a story that has an ultimate resolution, an end in which Jesus returns from heaven and ultimately wins the victory in which love wins and, and, and evil is rooted out and sin is ripped out of our lives and we're finally made whole into the people that we were always created to be living in the relationships we were created to live in the, in the world that God as God created it to be reflective of his goodness and love to live that story as the story that we're living in our lives that's the invitation of the scriptures to find ourselves in this story so that we can live along the trajectory of God's story and not just to live in the trajectory of God's story but to actually be a part of advancing God's story. This is the most incredible part of the story of God as it's told by scripture is that we're not just invited to to get swept up in it and come along for the ride. We're invited to be active agents in propelling the story forward towards its conclusion. So the interesting thing N.T. Wright says about the story, the way that it's told in the scriptures, is that Act 5, the act that we are living in, the, the part of the story that's about the Holy Spirit and the church and what God is doing towards bringing ultimate resolution to the history of creation where love will win in the end. The, the funny thing about the, the way that scripture tells the story about Act 5 is that we get the first scene where the Holy Spirit falls in this community of believers called the church and they become the early church and they begin to live out in various degrees of success what what a life of bearing the image of God looks like in community in the first century. We get that scene and then we get the final scene where Jesus returns and roots sin and evil out and pain and death and out of creation and restores everything back to the way God always wanted it to be. But there's nothing in between the first scene and the last scene. There's no script in the Bible for precisely how the story is supposed to be lived in the 21st century. And the invitation of Jesus, N.T. Wright says, or the invitation of Scripture, is to actually, for us as individuals and as a community, together with each other, discerning in community with the Holy Spirit, submissive to Scripture, to discern together how we're going to improvise the story of God from where it was handed to us to where we hand it to those who are following in our footsteps. Now, N.T. Wright says the word improvise, it can sound like a dangerous word. 
But anybody who's ever improvised on musical instruments or in theater knows that improvise does not mean do whatever you want. That when you improvise in the theater, you have to follow a certain set of rules. You have to follow the narrative arc that has been established. You have to live consistently with the direction that the story is going. You just can't start introducing all sorts of random stuff into the story. You have to, you have to continue along the path that the story is headed from the direction that it's coming from, you know, the, what we've learned in scripture about the church in the first century, and you have to live it towards the conclusion that we know is coming, right? Jesus' resolution of all things. You can't just make anything up, but you also can't just repeat stuff from earlier scenes. You can't just start quoting speeches from Act 2. We don't live in Act 2. We don't live in Act 3. We don't live in Act 4. We live in Act 5. And to just blindly go back and start lifting stuff out and saying, well, we have to do this because that was in Act 2. That's not improvising either. In fact, that would just confuse the whole narrative. No, we have to, together with each other, discerning in community by the Spirit, in submission to Scripture, in line with the person of Jesus, we have to begin to improvise our version of the story. As we carry the narrative of God's love invading our lives and through us invading the world, we have to carry that narrative forward towards the the day when Jesus returns and love wins and obliterates tears and death and mourning and crying and pain in creation. That's what we're living for and that's what we're living towards. And yes, the main parts have all been spoken for. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're basically the main characters. Peter and Mary, they've already taken the major speaking parts. Um, But we get to be a part of the chorus. We get to be extras. We get to have lines. We get to have a solo. We get to sing and to dance and, and we get to be a part of moving the story forward in this redemptive arc of God's love through Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit winning in creation that's a story you can anchor your life in because it is a story that itself is anchored in God the Father Almighty who is the creator of heaven and earth a story that is anchored in God the Son who became the flesh and blood human being of Jesus of Nazareth. It is a story that is anchored in God, the Holy Spirit, who hovers over creation, tending and nurturing and empowering, protecting and providing and enabling us to become everything that God has created us to be as we live the story of God in our lives and towards the future that God has for us. And I wonder what story you're living this morning. In fact, I want to invite the band back to the stage. And as we, as we close this series, I want, to, um, I want to close by praying for us. Not just about this morning, but about the entire series. I want to close by praying over us. By inviting God into our unique stories so that God can take our stories and invite them into his story. So close your eyes uh, as I pray over each of you in all of our locations. Maybe there are some here this morning for whom it's been a long time since you felt the nearness of God when 
where we said that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, that God is closer than the air that you breathe that rings hollow for you. You've been looking, but you haven't known where to find God. You've been reaching, but you haven't made contact. You haven't been able to come to know him or, or trust him in the story of your life. And if that's you this morning, Father, would you just um, impress yourself closely on those who feel far from you today? Father, would you make your presence tangible and real to those who have felt like you've been far off, who are doubting your love, who are doubting uh, your nearness, who are doubting your invitation um, for them to come close to you. And may they sense your presence. May you give them spirits that are awake. May you invite them into thin places in the coming days and weeks where they will encounter you in a fresh way. Maybe you're here this morning and you've got your doubts about Jesus. You, maybe you think he's a good moral teacher, or he's a great example of love, or um, you have your own ideas of who Jesus is. But you, you doubt that Jesus maybe isn't who the Bible declares him to be. And Jesus, would you make yourself real? to people in the community who need to experience you in a real way? Would you invite them into an encounter uh, with the truth about who you are, as the, the truth about who God is, as the truth about who we are? Would you invite them into an encounter with a deep, spirited faith conviction in your death and your resurrection and and the truth that you have changed everything in the world by your coming. May you make yourself real in a brand new way. Maybe you're here this morning and it's been a long time, if ever, that you've ever experienced the presence of the power of God. And uh, you're battling against something in your own life, uh, self-destructive behaviors, a habit, of whatever, sin of some kind, or... You find yourself struggling to live with a purpose. You find yourself struggling to know what your role is um, in pouring the love of God through your life into the lives of others. If that's you, Spirit, would you invade in a fresh way the lives of those who need a fresh encounter with your power, with your healing power, with your transforming power, with your empowering power, your enabling power. Father, would you... Um, would you fill us up with your spirit in a way that transforms our vision and transforms our hope and transforms our sense of the ways in which you're transforming us and using us to transform the world? May, may you become real in a brand new way to us. And finally, maybe you're here this morning and you're just living a story that is all over the place. Maybe you don't even know what your story is. Maybe you know what your story is and you're drowning in your story. Maybe you don't understand your story or maybe you like your story. You're not ready to give up your story, but you need a new story. If that's you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you invite each of us into your story? Would you allow us to live a life that's initiated in your love 
a life that's being transformed by your love. A life in which we're compelled to be agents of your love. May your story overwhelm every other story that we're living. So even in the midst of our circumstances, whatever they are, we know ourselves to be living on this story that begins with you, is lived through you, and is carried by you towards you coming in the end. And may that story be the place that we find our love and find our life. Would you anchor us in who you are and carry us along by your love. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your son who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever. Amen.